Welcome to the Key Wealth Matters weekly podcast, where we casually ramble on about important topics, including the markets, the economy, human ingenuity, and almost anything under the sun, giving you the keys to unlock the mysteries of the markets and investing. Today is Friday, August 11th, 2023. I'm Brian Peterangelo, and welcome to the podcast. And with me today, I would like to introduce our panel of investing experts here to provide their insights on this week's market activity and more. George Mateo, Chief Investment Officer, Steve Haight, Head of Equities, Rajiv Sharma, Head of Fixed Income, and Don Severno, Director of Investment Research. As a reminder, a lot of great content is available on key.com slash wealth insights, including updates from our Wealth Institute on many different subjects, and especially our Key Questions article series addressing a relevant topic for investors each Wednesday. In addition, if you have any questions or need more information, please reach out to your financial advisor. And taking a look at this week's economic and market news, we have three items to share with you this morning. First, just yesterday, the inflation as measured by the Consumer Price Index on a 12-month year-over-year number was released yesterday and showed that for July, the overall CPI was up 3.2%, which was slightly higher than June at 3.0%. However, the core CPI, when you exclude food and energy, year-over-year was 4.7% for July, slightly below the number for June, which was 4.8%. Of particular note, the shelter index as part of one of the components for overall CPI was the largest contributor to all the monthly items increase, accounting for over 90% of the increase. So we do see some of the subcomponents coming down, but shelter continues to remain sticky. Second, also released yesterday, the weekly initial unemployment claims report came out for the week ending August 5th, showing 248,000 initial unemployment claims were filed, which was a decent increase of over 21,000 from the prior week. This number has remained fairly stable, as we have talked about in many weeks over this podcast, and we'll have to see if this increase is something to portend for the near future regarding the employment picture. And third, we'll get our panel's take on this week's event with Moody's downgrade of 10 U.S. banks in terms of their overall credit rating, and we'll get the panel's reaction on that here in later on in the podcast. So, George, let's start with you on your reaction to the overall CPI print, what it might mean for the economy, and what it might mean for the Fed. George? Well, Brian, you're right to signal that inflation was kind of the story this past week. I think the overall view is that inflation is cooling. You know, we've kind of made some good progress there. There's frankly a lot of ways you can measure this. And I think the bulls would probably look at the month-over-month increases. And uh, now we've seen, I think, two or three straight months now where those monthly increases are around 20 basis points, 0.2%. That's kind of like the good old days. That's kind of reminiscent of where things were in 2019. You know, coming into this year, we've seen much higher levels of inflation, so things have kind of cooled back quite a bit. Uh, a lot of that's concentrated in the goods sector. We've talked about goods inflation uh, almost kind of turning into deflation, where you know, we've got, got prices for some goods that have actually started to turn negative year over year. Uh, the services economy, which is the bigger part of the economy, continues to be rather robust but volatile. I mean, there's a lot of things that have kind of gone back and forth between services being positive and negative. And somewhat curiously, housing-related inflation still seems kind of stubbornly high. If anything, it feels like it's a, a lag basis to me and maybe hasn't really quite uh, caught up with, with reality in the sense that some of those inflation numbers as it relates to housing are really almost through uh, through the spring. So they haven't really kind of caught up where things are now. But net-net, you know, I think inflation is cooling. I don't think it's really sufficiently cooled for the Fed to really completely back off and back away. 
Uh, I think it does support the fact that they've been talking about a pause for some time. The labor market, however, is quite strong. And this was not a report that from this week, but from the prior week. We talked about the fact that wages have still hovered around, you know, four, four and a half percent. And that's probably at least 100 basis points or a full percentage point above where the Fed would like them to be. We've also seen commodities talk uh, uh, move higher in the last few weeks or so, and that's going to have some probably lag effects on inflation too. Um, the labor market is, you know, I guess it's softening a bit. You know, talked about the fact that uh, jobless claims rose around 20,000, which, you know, maybe it's related to the film industry. So maybe those are some kind of short-term anomalies as opposed to something more structural. But overall, I kind of think we're in the backdrop right now where inflation is cooling, but I'm not really convinced that we're completely out of the woods just yet. Uh, Rajiv, if you think about this from the Fed's perspective, how do you think they process this information? How do you think they're kind of interpreting some of these these cross currents? Well, yes. I mean, I mean, the number was a good number. I think the markets were happy with the number. Uh, is the Fed happy with the number? What does the Fed do now? Uh, well, the Fed the Fed has not ruled out the possibility of another rate hike. Uh, the market has. Uh, if you look at the market expectations, uh, you know, right right when the CPI number came out, the market pretty much said, okay, it's in line with expectations. Uh, the two-year yield fell eight basis points right away. Uh, they took uh, the September meeting off the table as far as a rate hike. That expectation was around 22% by the market that we'd have a 25 basis point rate hike in September. That fell to 10% right after the CPI print. So pretty much the market is saying that uh, there's going to be a pause in September. If you go further out and you look at November's FOMC, probabilities were around uh, 26% or so for a 25 basis point rate hike in November. So again, the market's really looking at this and saying, okay, this is enough for the Fed to pause, but the Fed has not ruled out that possibility of another rate hike. And we have a few Fed members that are coming out and sticking to the narrative that inflation is still not at 2%. We still have a lot of data before the September meeting to look at. Uh, we did get that hotter than expected PPI print today, which again, puts the Fed back in play again. We have uh, FOMC minutes that are coming out next week. That'll give us a good opportunity to see where the Fed members are thinking, where their heads are at, and also an opportunity for Fed members to continue their narrative, come out, speak about uh, emphasizing that next month's meeting is still a live one. Uh, they could point to energy prices as well. They could say that energy prices are going higher. Uh, the Fed doesn't want to really take that victory lap yet. Uh, they don't want to get caught in a situation just like they got with the transitory situation they had before. They want to be able to take the victory lap at some point, but right now I don't think they're ready to do that. Uh, you did have New York Fed President John Williams come out and state that uh, if inflation continues to fall, the Fed may need to lower interest rates in 2024 or 2025 to make sure that real rates don't rise any further. And that's very interesting because we haven't seen any Fed members really speak towards any rate cuts yet. So maybe there are a few Fed members that are starting to look into the future and seeing exactly what the next next part of this playbook goes. And I think that's going to be very important to see. Uh, what the yield curve is telling us, however, is that 10 year remains the lowest yield on the curve. So we remain inverted. But we we have seen the curve steepen in the past week. And that means that yields are moving higher further out the curve. And that's a pain trade. Uh, many people have extended duration in the last couple of months. They're feeling that pain because the longer end of the yield curve is starting to move higher. We had when the PPI print came out today, we had uh, the tenure move to around 415, 4.15%. Uh, that's pretty high. We were on 4.20% last week also. So the tenure is moving higher. And I think this is catching a lot of market participants off guard. Most market participants were thinking that, okay, we're going to hit a recession. The Fed's going to have to cut rates. That'll bring down the front end of the yield curve. And then we would go positively sloping again. 
Instead, what's happening is the front end remains elevated and we're starting to see the, uh, the further out the curve, we're starting to see that part of the curve start to move up. And that is the steepening trade. And I think a lot of people are caught off guard with that one. And I would just also mention that in all of this, what credit spreads, and they've been very well behaved. We had a couple of very strong news items that came out. Moody's downgraded 10 small to mid-sized banks this week. The rationale behind the downgrade was nothing new. The market pretty much anticipated uh, all those points that Moody's made. And so the reaction in the market was fairly muted. But I have to say the investment grade spreads in all the sectors did well this week. Uh, there, was no, uh, there was no systemic risk that came out of that downgrade. Uh, we continue to recommend high quality corporate bonds over U.S. Treasuries in this market. And the reason is that it, investment grade spreads have remained so resilient. Uh, we only widened one basis point in investment grade this week, and that's with the backdrop of over $30 billion in new issuance this week. So spreads in investment grade remain uh, extremely well-behaved. Uh, High-yield spreads actually narrowed this week. They, they went tighter by 13 basis points this week. So again, credit spreads are showing no signs of panic, and I think right now that's uh, something very important to keep an eye on. So credit markets are contained, no contagion there. Um, the banking sector issues have been well documented, maybe kind of already in the price, so to speak. And the Fed is uh, is probably on vacation, at least for a little bit longer anyway, until they kind of really get a, maybe a truer sense of inflation. I guess that backdrop, Steve, sets up pretty positive for equities. I mean, we've seen stocks also kind of levitate here. They've just been kind of churning, it seems like. But uh, maybe beneath the surface, are you seeing any kind of Signs of new leadership potentially. Well, we've been a, we've been in a grind lower, George, this this week, um, following on last week, and uh, you know, to be honest, as you go through the dog days of summer, it's it's pretty much what you kind of expect. I mean, we came in uh, with really robust performance for the market in the first seven months of the year, um, and entering the the most seasonally weak period, it made sense to us that we could see the market pull back and, and take a breather here. And that's kind of what we've got. And there's been no kind of, uh, you know, giant kind of uh, downdraft or anything like this. It's just been more of a slow grind to the downside. Uh, is it done yet? <clears throat> Not necessarily, uh, in, my, in my view. I mean, if you look, there's no nothing in the market internals that indicates that we've gotten to an oversold condition yet we're, we're kind of grinding our way there um and you know if you if you think it we might grind back and forth a little bit um over say the next month or so that gets us through the seasonally weak period and it sets us up for a good good run into the end of the year which is what it seems like we we, we may be maybe having you know when you think about the economic numbers and things like this the one thing that's surprised all year long has been growth um, and one of the things that really has jumped to the forefront in August is commodity performance. So across the board, we're seeing commodities doing well during the month of August. And in particular, we've seen oil have a significant move higher. Oil, uh, whether people are paying attention to it or not, oil is at a high for the year. Um, and uh, if you look at the next chart resistance point, uh, you've you've got another ten dollars to run before you 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 run into anything on a chart that says um, that if we we can get through the current level fairly decisively, that we're we're not going to move higher. Uh, unsurprisingly, you know, in, in terms of new leadership, uh, that that has led to energy stocks doing well, especially relative to the market. Uh, energy stocks are are at a multi-month highs, and and they've just made a new 65-day high relative to the S&P 500. Um, they're they're really the only sector right now that's that's showing kind of tactical momentum, showing showing leadership characteristics. 
Uh, everything else is kind of uh, participating in that slow grind lower. So you know we're 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 continuing to to emphasize that energy is is one of the more attractive places to be for for our investors, George. Well, I think that might be an interesting segue to talk about international markets too. You know, I think the idea that energy has been kind of uh, a sort of a sudden strength right now typically would suggest that maybe parts of the world like China are reopening and strengthening a little bit. You know, historically, China has been responsible for somewhat of a commodity boom over past cycles, looking back over the last couple of years, but. It seems to me, Don, that um, you know this is a different environment right now for China. But why don't you kind of join the conversation and uh, and share some thoughts about China in particular, about what you're seeing? Sure. Uh, so, uh, we, George, you mentioned uh, goods deflation, actually, a, a potential for goods deflation in the U.S. earlier er, earlier in the conversation, and we actually saw a surprise print on CPI in China earlier this week. Uh, so the headline CPI number was actually in deflationary territory. Uh, prices decreased 0.3% during July. This is the first time any major country has uh, printed headline deflation since Japan two years ago during the midst of COVID. Um, if, if we dig into the number a little bit more, uh, it, it, it was really due to pork, uh, surprisingly. Uh, so if we back out uh, energy and food, so if we just get at core inflation, um, the, the number was actually positive. So there, there was inflation on a core side within China during July, but uh, pork had an abnormally high supply during July and abnormally low demand. Uh, it's the, it was just the recipe for a deflationary period, uh, just based on maybe that one uh, food item. Uh, but that puts, if that is persistence, if there is some persistence in that number and inflation maybe is around zero or slightly negative, uh, it puts pressure on household wealth. Uh, it's uh, it, it's really tough for borrowers to repay loans. It's uh, it, it cuts spending, uh, household spending further as they people expect you know cheaper prices on the horizon. It's kind of almost a self fulfilling prophecy. Uh, how did we get there? Uh, it, here's here's just my opinion. You know, uh, coming into this year, China was the big uh, growth story. This was they they were emerging from COVID zero, and a lot of investors thought that there was going to be a uh, a, a spike in demand, a, a, a spike in output, a spike in economic growth uh, during China. It did not happen. Uh, there, there was an initial spike for a couple months, uh, and then what happened was we 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 saw that. Uh, Households were saving more than they were spending. The, the expected revenge trips or the revenge travel uh, of the Chinese consumer stayed in-house. It stayed in China. It, they, they didn't get out of the country. They didn't uh, do the global travel that was maybe expected earlier in the year. Um, it just didn't materialize. Uh, and investors have remained stingy uh, because of that. So while there was an initial spike in investment into China coming out of COVID zero, that is backed off quite a bit. Uh, and what doesn't help also is the geo geopolitical uh, issues with uh, Western powers, especially the United States. You may have seen yesterday, President Biden at a fundraiser um, mentioned China, and that, that coincides directly with an executive order that came out earlier this week saying that, uh, you know, uh, venture capital and private equity firms are 
are, are limited in what they they can have exposure to in Chinese semiconductors or Chinese artificial intelligence companies. Uh, that just completely that that continues to lower investment uh, investor demand. Uh, and that geopolitical gamesmanship kind of is going to uh, maybe lead to uh, China kind of muddling through in the near term. Uh, other economic numbers also um, kind of uh, showed China slowing down. Growth numbers didn't hit. Uh, you know, exports to the U.S. actually fell 20 percent during the second quarter. And overall exports from China declined more than 12 percent. Uh, and even uh, within China, young workers, both skilled and unskilled, are having trouble finding jobs. Uh, over 20% of young workers uh, can't find jobs and are looking for them. Um, it's actually just a big miss on uh, what was expected on China coming into this year versus today. Investors should really care about that because uh, wherever we're investing in any kind of global firm, any kind of exporting firm, any kind of importing firm, Things that are, are companies that are involved in commodities, companies involved in the global energy market. China is involved in them. The, the demand, global demand for a lot of those things is driven by the Chinese consumer. It's driven by the Chinese production behemoth. Uh, and uh, just understanding what's going on there. And instead of reacting to it, having uh, a, a, a core position there. Uh, with a, a highly active manager who can react to potential changes to the macro environment within China um, leads to better outcomes. So uh, basically, investment in China, uh, it, it, it is part of a portfolio, a well-balanced portfolio, and uh, China is kind of leading the way on the demand curve moving forward. But we are seeing some uh, slowdown within, within the country, right? Well, at the very least, you've got two large countries right now that are really at different phases, it seems to me, at their economic cycle. I mean, the United States is still you know, putting pretty good growth, uh, maybe even too much. So the Fed has to think about keeping its foot on the brakes a little bit, whereas China, China is going through a slowdown, as you mentioned, Don, and might, uh, might need to undertake some significant easing uh, to try and get their economy revitalized. So you know, when you have uh, two big countries like this that uh, dominate the world in so many ways, at the very least, you want to be diversified, I guess. But we also continue to have an overweight and an emphasis towards U.S. markets in general. They are more expensive. So we've been kind of thinking that despite the fact that valuations are more elevated here at home, uh, they're deserving of such. So for that reason, we want to stay diversified, but kind of tilt a little bit towards the U.S. markets. And as Rajiv and, and C both mentioned, there's a lot of opportunities at the security level. Uh, and focusing on quality really seems to be an enduring theme of ours that will continue to emphasize going forward. Well, thanks for the conversation today, George, Steve, Rajiv, and Don. We appreciate your insights. And thanks to our listeners for joining us today. Be sure to subscribe to the Key Wealth Matters podcast through your favorite podcast app. As always, past performance is no guarantee of future results, and we know your financial situation is personal to you. So reach out to your relationship manager, portfolio strategist, or financial advisor for more information, and we'll catch up with you next week to see how the world and the markets have changed and provide those keys to help you achieve your financial success. The Key Wealth Matters podcast is produced by the Key Wealth Institute. The Key Wealth Institute is comprised of financial professionals representing key entities, including key private bank, key bank institutional advisors, key private client, and key investment services. Any opinions, projections, or recommendations contained herein are subject to change without notice and are not intended as individual investment advice. 
This material is presented for informational purposes only and should not be construed as individual tax or financial advice. Bank and trust products are provided by KeyBank National Association, a member of FDIC and Equal Housing Lender. Key Private Bank and KeyBank Institutional Advisors are part of KeyBank. Investment products, brokerage, and investment advisory services are offered through Key Investment Services, LLC, or KISS, a member of FINRA, SIPC, and SEC Registered Investment Advisor. Insurance products are offered through Key Corp Insurance Agency, USA Incorporated, or KIA. KISS and KIA are affiliated with KeyBank. Investments and insurance products are not FDIC insured, not bank guaranteed, may lose value, not a deposit, not insured by any federal or state government agency. KeyBank and its affiliates do not provide tax or legal advice. Individuals should consult their personal tax advisor before making any tax-related investment decision. This content is copyrighted by KeyCorp 2023.